box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Mia Hull is my name and I'm very excited to be joining you for Out of the Box. It's the show where every Thursday I sit down with one person and have a look at their record collection and the stories that come with it. Today I'm broadcasting from FBI studio in Redfern and my guest is joining me from the comfort of her home. It means that each of us are coming to you from Gadigal country. So I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm chatting to poet and filmmaker Miro Bilbra. Miro's films have won Australian and international awards and her memoir in the time of the Manoroans was shortlisted for New South Wales Premier's Literary Award this year. But throughout the show today, we'll find that there's a lot more to Miro's life than just her professional success. It involves a commune in remote Marlborough and life modelling for drawing classes and pursuing the arts at a tertiary level, among many other things. And it spans New Zealand and Australia. It's also a story that you can find in Miro's memoir, the one I mentioned before, which hit shelves in Australia just yesterday. So today, while we're taking a wander through some of the stories from the book, we'll also take a wander through some of the songs that have meant something special to Miro along the way. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Miro. Oh, big pleasure. Hi. So I guess if we do this in the same order as the memoir, we'll start from the very start. Miro, where does your life begin? It begins... Not surprisingly, at my at my parents' house. Um, but in fact, my stay with them is quite short-lived. Um, I live with them till till I'm six, and they're pretty. Um, they're art students, um, training college students. They they change their notional careers a lot. They move around a lot. Um, we're talking about New Zealand, uh, and the book sort of um, lightly dips into. Um, memories of of that world of as I say um, there I was at four slicing cold potato on the windowsill um, while my parents marriage went to the dogs in the next room so by six or seven um, I was you know somewhat surprisingly I went for a holiday with my grandmother my communist grandmother who lived in Wellington New Zealand and never returned never returned to my parents house did you have siblings that went to your grandmother's house as well? No, no. There was. I had a um, a baby brother, uh, Polo, um, who who actually was a cop death um, not long after I left, uh, and I had a sister, Paula, the feminine version, um, and she she stayed with my parents. Yeah, so it was just me. Just you living with your grandmother? Was it just the two of you living in the house? No, um, we lived in an apartment and my grandmother um, had had five children over, um, you know, a long period of time. And so she had a son, Martin, who was actually seven years older than me, Uncle Martin, um, who kind of took the role of a brother. Um, And she had many adult daughters, one of whom, of course, was my mother, um, but also Aunt Amanda, who lived in the downstairs flat and was later replaced by Aunt Melissa, who lived with us for a time. Aunt Melissa kind of semi-supported my grandmother. She worked. At, she was a librarian. She worked in the Wellington Victoria University Library and she sort of supplemented my grandmother's pension, which she essentially bought me up on and Martin. Mm. Um, and then Melissa married and moved downstairs and Aunt Amanda moved elsewhere. And that was, um, I arrived at my grandmother's at six in 1971. Yeah, 1970. So your grandmother's supporting herself, Uncle Martin, and you on, on a pension. What kind of life did you have? Um, well, and, and of course, um, Melissa, Aunt Melissa was helping out, but... Mm. Um, well, my grandmother was very much a lover of beauty, so she still occasionally had, you know, sets of um, crystal glasses on lay-by at Kirkcaldy's and Stain. Um, <laughs> she had her Swedish coffee pot that she liked to brew coffee and put fresh cardamom in it. So she had a, um, you know, I guess she was an aesthete in her own right. 
Um, but the other side of it was we were quite poor and, um, you know, money for school trips and those things were, were kind of vexed. Um, she had her children helping out. I was always very aware that we lived in quite a posh suburb. Um, it was ameliorated by the fact that it was a university suburb, Kelvin Wellington. Um, but we lived, you know, in a rental and my grandmother, when the house was sold out from under us, she contested the sale and she wouldn't let um, potential buyers through while we were living there. She picketed with my aunt Amanda, who had set up tenants protection in Wellington in the early 70s. They, they picketed the auction and in the end the house went for, um, I think, 40 grand less than its market value. And the new landlord that came in um, gave my grandmother a sort of permanently reduced fixed rent for the next couple of decades. So, you know, um, she was quite radical and one was very aware, I was aware of money and economics and what it could and couldn't buy from, from very early on. And my friends had big flash houses, you know, so there was a gap. But my grandmother never made it a source of shame, you know, it was a kind of pride. Yeah, it, it sounds like she really made do with the money that she had as well, you know, with the with the spiced tea with cardamom and new crystal glasses. You said you only lived there for seven years, which what would have made you about 14 when it's time to leave? Why did you leave? That's such an early age to be moving out. Yes, I guess my aunt Amanda, who's in the book, has sort of since told me that, that my my fate, um, I wasn't alone in, in this kind of falling out with my grandmother when I reached adolescent. Um, ostensibly, I got sent away for answering back. I became a kind of um, an adolescent sort of classic storm in a teacup. My sexuality was brewing. Um, my grandmother was pretty... Uh, sensitised to her daughter's adolescent sexuality. And I think she stamped down on it pretty hard. The same thing had happened to my mother before me. Uh, so there was a bit of a history of, I think, of my grandmother not really coping with adolescent girls. Uh, my mother had left home early. My aunt Amanda has since, since kind of said, oh, what happened to you was... was um, we all experienced shades of that. Um, and I, I think, you know, that I just became, I became restless. I wandered the neighbourhood, you know, for hours every weekend, um, sort of, you know, very vicarious, sort of the sense of, you know, um, the life to come was, was sort of in my bones. And um, she didn't really cope with that. And I, I think the other side of it was that Martin uh, was pretty troubled. Martin, my uncle brother, um, was depressive and co a complex person, having a hard time at school. And uh, I think she had her hands full. She was getting older um, and she just didn't need, you know, another thankless adolescent around, which was me. Um, so she decided that it was time um, for me to have a bit of parenting, parenting and go and live with my dad, um, who was sort of newly, not exactly divorced, but newly separated. Newly separated from your mum? From my mother. I think he mm -hmm. had three days notice. So it was all, as things tend to be in my family, it was sort of sudden and dramatic and a bit operatic. I was what mm. my grandmother would call out on your ear which cast me in a very good girl light, which is the other side of it, because I, I uh, enjoyed school. I think sort of five of my six teachers offered for me to come and live with them and, and finish. It was school cert in New Zealand, it was the HSC year. Um, they didn't want me, you know, breaking, breaking off in the middle. But my grandmother said, you know, no, I can't have you in the same town. Um, so that was that. In a couple of minutes, let's talk about, you know, your move to your dad's house and, and what that move meant for you. But first, Miro, a song. What's the first one you've picked for the show today? So this song, Another Girl, Another Planet, uh, by the only ones I first heard uh, in my second share flat in Wellington. I'm back in Wellington. I'm 
going to design school or about to go to design school and I hear this song, Another Girl, Another Planet, um, and it's just, it's raw, it's lo-fi, it's got the punk sound. I'm completely in love with punk because it's such an antidote to the whole sort of um, the hippie idealism and kind of loviness. Uh, it's just the antithesis of that. Um, and it's probably the antithesis of what I am as well, the punk sound. And so, of course, I love it. Um, another girl, another planner, I just used to dance around my my bedroom. I never owned it. I used to request it serially on the radio. Well, you're requesting it right now on the radio, a song for leaving Wellington and for returning to Wellington. It's Another Girl, Another Planet by The Only Ones. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio with me, Mia Hull, and writer Miro Bilbra. You get under my skin, I don't find it You're tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was by The Only Ones. It was called Another Girl, Another Planet, and it was picked by my guest on the show today, Miro Bilbra, who just before playing that song was talking about living with her grandmother in Wellington and eventually having to move very far away. That very far away place would be your dad's house, Miro. How far are we talking? Yes, my father lived... um in a little ex-gold mining town, pretty remote, called Canvas Town. Sort of, not exactly the top of the South Island, but you know, Wellington is the is the bottom of the North Island, and Canvas Town is between Blenheim and Nelson. And um, probably travelled in his little blue V-dub Beetle back to Canvas Town and and back to his sort of shocking setup, uh, the flood house with no plumbing, you know, no running water. Um, you know, it was, it was, it felt pretty cruel in those first weeks after, you know, this fairly comfortable lower middle class lifestyle in, in the city. Yeah, you refer to the to your father's house as the flood house during the book. Is there a reason that it has that name? So it was actually that was kind of it had two names in in the sort of local parlance. Um, it was either the hippie house um, after my dad. Um, or the flood house. But the flood house um, was because it was built on a floodplain, essentially, on the banks of the Waka Marina River. And the flood house would be the place where you've got early interactions with the Manoroans as well, wouldn't it? Yes. The Manoroans, um, in those days it was called passing through, you know, just passing through, or the other one was was crash pad. And I guess... um, my dad's house, my father's house, could have been a crash pad, except he was a bit crash pad verse. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't just going to have anyone, um, you know, dropping, passing through, staying the night. But the Manorones had a kind of a, a privileged, yeah, they had a good relationship with my father. He was, um, they were a fascinating collection of people, and they would travel out of this very, very remote commune in the Marlborough, deep in the Marlborough Sounds, you know, like three, three and a half hours, I think it was, by boat to, to reach that commune. So they would come out on the mail boat and then they would be hitchhiking. Sometimes they might travel out on horse by road, there was a road, um, or even occasionally horse and cart. So they would sort of turn up you know, by power of thumb, they might have hitchhiked from the mail boat. That was the usual way. And they would just come to, um, you know, to stop over for the night. And how did you feel about them at the time? Were you fascinated by these people? They were living on a commune and what, you were 14? What did you think of them? Oh, they were, you know, they were extremely, they were sort of birds of paradise, really. They were so exotic. Um, The men had long hair. Um, they, you know, they might, a man might be wearing, you know, black wool band trousers with a red stripe down the leg, held up by a piece of rope. 
um, you know, black hair and a ponytail. They they would sit on the kitchen floor and do each other's hair in the morning. Um, the women sort of wore multiple skirts, old vintage 40s, 30s crepe dresses with muddy hems and gumboots. You know, they were, they were like um, tribal people. Really, most of all, they were like Eastern European gypsies, I think. Uh, mm. And then there were sort of codes of behaviour. They had some kind of um, charisma, I think, sort of gravity and presence and wonderful props, you know, extremely mm. good props. <laughs> and and we'll circle back to the Manor Owens later in the story because obviously they did play a pretty big role in your life. Um, so you've got this um, propensity for, for school and study and that would eventually bring you to Nelson. Why Nelson? Yeah, well, what happened there was that my dad decided after, I think I was with him about six months, um, and I got to the end of that sort of quite critical year, the fifth form, um, with my day off every week, and he decided that he was going to move to Manaroa because um, he... You know, there was a big sort of word around in the late late seventies, and that was relationship with a capital R. And he was going to have a relationship, um, presumably with one of the Manoroans. So, and I just sort of thought that'll be it. That'll be it for schooling for me. Uh, so I decided that I would go to the next city, which was Nelson, which was a couple of hours away and five or six hours away from Manoroa. So my father and I hitchhiked to Nelson. Um, and I, I had I had a friend, he had a friend there that I was able to stay with for a while, but ultimately I had to find a flat. Um, and he had, we, we, we went into the local health food shop, which was called The Thin Shop, and there was a man behind the counter with really fantastic sort of corkscrew poodle hair called Robert. And I think my father just probably told Robert about my situation, you know, looking at the notice board and um, and Robert said, oh, well, you know, I've got a room in my share house. She can, Miro can live there. So that's where I ended up. I went flashing. Um, I was 15 and it was my last year of school. Um, so I flashed for the last year of school with Robert and various others. I knew that I was going to go to Manaroa at the end of that year because I wanted to reconnect with, you know, I actually sort of said, you know, I think I need a bit more parenting. I'd sort of fallen in with a guy called Richard who was twice my age and even I sensed there was something not quite working about that um, and that I might be looking for a father figure. I thought I'll go and get some actual fathering. Had some growing up to do. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, after this song I want to talk about what it meant to go back to Manaroa and what that experience was like. But first, a song. It's called Sketch of Summer, Miro. Why did you pick this one? So Sketch of Summer, Sketch of Summer is kind of jumping ahead, actually, um, to when I end back in Wellington. Um, it was by the Deridi Column, uh, who were named after um, an anarchist troop in the who fought in the Spanish World War. Um, but I just never heard anything like it. The the chef at the cafe that I ended up working in when I was about 17, back in Wellington, used to play it when he was making French onion soup and aioli and I was making my peanut brownies that sometimes spread into a single sheet on the baking sheet. And he used to play this incredibly spacious track and, you know, it's got the sense of temperature and mood and season It was nothing like anything that I had heard before. Beautiful. (laughs) 
That song was called Sketch of Summer and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Miro Bilbra, who, you know, just before playing that song, talked about heading back to the Maranoans after finishing school as kind of, I want to call it almost a coming of age venture. Would you would you say it was that? Yeah, it, it, it was in a, in a kind of... Um sort of with seven league boots on in the sense that I was kind of catapulted out of, uh, you know, my own um, peer group or age group or social world. And suddenly I was in this remote um, bay, deep tucked away in the Melbourne Sounds, living with adults. And I was, you know, the only adolescent there. So... Um, and that and that was quite strange. There were no there were no boys. There were no girls. Um, yeah, everybody was in their late twenties. Or my dad, who was ancient, you know, he was in his thirties. Uh, so it was quite a um, I don't know what the word would be, a bit dissonant in a way, but quite quite thrilling. Quite thrilling until it wasn't. <laughs> quite thrilling until it became quite lonely. When you visualise your life with the Maranoans, what did it actually look like? What do you see? Um, I see the bay um, with this kind of road sort of cut cut down through the hills um, and it's curving round into the bay with the jetty where the boats, where the mail boat pulled up. The house itself was set right back up against the hills and it was called the Pines. It was an old farmhouse um, that the farm owners lived in another house kind of across the paddocks and they rented the commune, this absolute dump called the Pines, uh, which was set amongst the Pines. And it had this, but it had this very dreamy kind of paradisical garden. Um, the one thing, the Manoroans were, were gardeners um, and that was that was sort of one of the visions of the place, I think, that we could live out of the garden, which we didn't fully, but still we did. You know, it had things like kale and, you know, a commonplace, which was not so commonplace back then in the early 80s as it is now. Um, you know, we were having borage flowers in our salads and um, marigolds and... And and that garden was surrounded by little sleepouts and actual actual kind of gypsy caravans um, that were were called the sleepouts. So the the house couldn't accommodate everyone. There were sort of ten to twelve regular people, and we lived. I lived, in fact, in one of those caravans. But mine was a very down market aluminium job. It was an ex rabbiter's caravan pretty ugly. Um, everyone at Manoa was slightly offended by by its aesthetic. Um, and I never ever managed to finish the paint job because I just didn't have good stickability with things like that. So it was sort of half half high gloss gloss emerald green and yeah. And and what did your days look like there? I imagine having a big garden like that, there's a lot of you know, labour and upkeep. Am I right in saying that? Yes. I mean, it was, it was sort of hard graft. It was, it was, you know, it was called, um, that time was called the back to the land movement. And we were part of that. Um, this idea that you could, you know, leave the cities and go back to the land and live a kind of life, um, of subsistence or where you grew your own food, but also a kind of outside establishment, the establishment, you know, it's called the establishment. So it was it was a sort of off-grid idea. My father, I remember, used to sort of go around muttering too much manual labour deadens the brain. Mm. <laughs> he was a writer and he would was always staging sort of satirical puppet shows and um, theatre and... and yeah, he felt that people would, were sort of working too hard or smoking too much dope and, you know, where was the life of the mind? Mm. Were you happy when you lived there? Um, it had a mystique around it. There was guitar playing and, you know, if you if you wanted to make bread, you, you would hop on a bicycle 
um, that was uh, attached to a wheat grinder and you would bicycle to grind the grain to make the bread and then you might essentially have to fell a manuka tree, tea tree we call it here, to light the coal range to bake the bread, you know, with the sourdough bug that's bubbling by the stove. So everything is extremely um, labour intensive and of course I was a an adolescent who just liked to dream more than anything so I wasn't really the best at the hardcore manual labour I sort of potted and that was tolerated it was all it was a very tolerant place and there were no um, rosters or it was it had an anarchist kind of streak so nothing was ever arranged really about who would do what it was voluntary you self-volunteered or not which you know had had upsides and downsides I just became bored and I realized that I wanted more education I decided that I actually wanted to go to design school because somewhere somewhere towards the end of staying there I took a trip to Wellington and I took my um, art portfolio from university entrance art from school and I went and saw school publications who published are quite famous in New Zealand these wonderful journals for schools full of stories and illustration and little doco stories and they commissioned me to do a couple of illustrations so you know I was I was life was kind of giving me a tap on the shoulder and um, it was time to it was time to go um, and I decided I wanted to go to design school. Was being commissioned for those illustrations the final push for you to leave the Maranoans or was there something else that brought you to that decision? Yes, um, that was a really great trigger. But at the same time, I had um, begun a relationship with a man called Hookie, who is um, a very sort of droll, humid, deadpan, poker-faced Londoner um, who was about double my age and he had a dog called Jimbo um, and we were wildly incompatible so it was sort of probably desperation on both counts um, we were both lonely and we kind of I became his confidant um, which of course I was very proud of um, being so young um, but you know I think it went bad really quite quite quickly um, and in the end he threw a scythe at me when we were cutting bracken and I think it was calculated a scythe is a, a curved bladed instrument you use for cutting a they're sickle, big too, a sickle. They? They're, they're big and they're they're lethal you know and it sort of I I write in the book that I felt the rush of air as it you know went past my ear so and that was that I actually left the next day I, yeah I don't remember that it was terror it was more a sense of um the last straw is feels slightly inadequate metaphor but it was just a sense of something being over well it's almost like there's a little bit of a carrot and a stick there because yeah. you've got you know that commissioned <laughs> <laughs> or a, or a side because you've got you know you commissioned artworks in Wellington yeah. as well and in the next part of the show I want to talk about going to design school but first you've chosen a song by the great Joni Mitchell to play on the show today Mira I'm so excited to see this one in the lineup why did you pick it so last time I saw Richard from Blue um, I actually the guy I was going out with in Nelson who was also another sort of um, flailing dad figure was called Richard so it must have tickled a little bit um, my sense of um, irony in a way because the Richard in the song um, is that you've got tunes in your eyes but the songs you punched are dreaming. It's sort of about cafe life, um, cynical and boring someone in some dark cafe. So it just, it had the place, it had the person. I knew Cafe Society from Nelson. It's so velvety and sad and damning and blue and yet strangely hopeful, like so many of Joni Mitchell's songs, who I was sort of like the anthem for my life and so many other people's, and so, so exquisite. It's a dark, it's a ballad of disenchantment. Oh, my God, I thought that was so sophisticated. Drink up now, it's getting on time for clothes. Richard, 
you haven't really changed. I said, it's just that now you're romanticizing some pain that's in your head. You got tombs in your eyes, but the songs you punched are dreaming. Listen, they sing love so sweet, love so sweet. When you're gonna get yourself back on your feet? Oh, love can be so sweet. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was by Joni Mitchell. It was called The Last Time I Saw Richard. The chooser was, of course, Miro Bilbera, my guest on Out of the Box. Today, we just talked about, you know, the time that you spent with the Manorowans and eventually decided to leave. We come to Wellington. You start design school. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think um, so. I came to Wellington. um, In fact, before I started design school, I remember I lived at this place called the Lotus Yoga Center, and I lived in a high gloss red garden shed with a um, which had been, you know, sort of reimagined as a little another sleep out. It was another sleep out, but in a kind of urban backyard, and it had a mezzanine bed. And there I met Steve Braunius, who's who's now a very known writer and journalist in New Zealand. Um, we were we were we became flatmates. Um, I got a job at Natural Juices that was about to become City Limits and go quite new wavy punk, uh, which is where I first heard the Doretti Column. Um, and That's then the song we played earlier in the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then I think by at the end of a year of kind of um, sort of a, a different an induction into a different kind of cafe society, I was probably getting a bit bored of hanging out and also the life of I was essentially a baker in a cafe, um, and so I decided to uh, make good on this this dream around illustration, and I applied for design school, um, and got in. Uh, so then I'm actually at Wellington Polytechnic doing visual communications design. And I uh, funny thing happened when I was there, I used to, I think even actually before I started there as a student, I used to model there. I used to do life modelling for the drawing classes, actually for the students who would later become the year above me when I started. Um, and one of the teachers at one point made some kind of a woman teacher said oh you remind me of this you know this young woman called Christina who used to model here you know um, 20 years ago and she just had a body just like yours. anyway it was my mother um, because my mother had been really yeah in the first I think she was in the very first intake of design school students and she too modeled for life drawing and that was not something that I had ever known so it was a a kind of uncanny little um, mirror thing that happened. Had you seen much of your mother since, you know, moving out as a, as a child by this point? No, I, I went, when I lived at my grandmother's, my parents would visit kind of probably every few years. So I must have seen them. You could count the times I saw them um, on the fingers of one hand. Everyone was poor. We didn't travel so much. I think I... I visited them at Waiheke Island in our old house maybe only once and that was actually quite a terrible thing going back to your childhood home but it not being your home anymore and by that time my sister had come along so everything was sort of different and I and I was a bit of an outsider Um, but they did they used to visit Wellington and they were so impossibly cool I just thought they were so cool again they were sort of like glamorous strangers really that I aspired to but didn't really have a the child's relationship to well I mean I guess aspiring to them did come to fruition later in your life because you know you ended up life modeling at Polytech University in Wellington the same as what your mother had done so yeah let's go back to Polytech then jumping around in the timeline (laughs) again but you started off life modeling and then became one of the students there as well. What was it like to study there? It was quite strange, actually, because I think I thought that I was going to an art school, you know, and I wasn't. I was going to a polytech, and the whole ethos was very different. And so, of course, I was being trained to work in advertising. And I, you know, this is the girl raised by communists and hippies. 
So I had a kind of, um, I had completely the wrong headset for advertising and I, and I was pretty cynical about the notion of a client, go figure. So I was kind of in the wrong place and I thought that it would be far more arty and it was a very rule-bound, quite controlling place and the faculty were almost universally older, late middle-aged men. Um, and I, I can remember once that my then boyfriend put his arm around me when we were looking at each other's work and class and this guy actually blew a whistle. So, you know, from having kind of lived with adults on a commune and to go into this very authoritarian sort of schooly situation was just wrong, wrong, wrong for me. Um, I also became pregnant. Um, I was much more interested in, you know, the social life and sexuality and all of those things than this kind of very um, nailed down world that I found myself in. So I was just temperamentally and values wise completely in the wrong place. Um, which, and I sort of stubbornly um, dug my heels in about that. I should have left. Um, they failed me and it was kind of great. It was the first time I'd been failed in my life. And once I got over the humiliation, I realised that I'd been set free. And, and I went off to university where I, where I thrived and was much happier. But I did meet, I did meet my first boyfriend there, um, who I was with for seven years. And, um, you know, yeah, that was sort of around the time of Another Girl, Another Planet. And eventually the man I live mm. with now was also in that year. So it was, it was a sort of a, <laughs> in another kind of way, a completely um, sort of like a crucible of my later life. If you don't mind me asking, can you tell me about that pregnancy that you had at Polytech? Yeah, um, I became pregnant. It would have been, I think it would have been in the first part of that year. Um, and it was, you know, it was a sort of a casual encounter or it was, again, just an encounter. In fact, it was a flatmate, you know, fess up. It was a flatmate and it was just never, ever going to be anything other than a one-off encounter. Yeah, so I became pregnant and I had an abortion. I remember that the, you know, it was a very difficult thing to negotiate at the time in that environment. And I remember that the, um, some of the staff were very disapproving, the male staff. And it was kind of, I really felt at the end of the year that I could have been failed for the abortion or for getting pregnant. I think, you know, I, I think I was probably seen as a loose woman. And I, because, and I based that on one of the, um, the tutors, the teachers actually saying to me, every time I look around, you're making very lively eye contact with someone. I was very social and lively and I had an opinion and that was kind of frowned on. But what happened was I, I got together, not with the person I'm with, but with Phil Kelly, who designed the cover of this book, really beautifully, I think. Uh, Phil Kelly was in my class and Jeremy Clegg. I live with Jeremy now, but Phil was, was the one that became my boyfriend. Um, and I almost immediately fell pregnant to Phil. So it was just this sort of year of crazy fertility and pretty inept contraception. So I became pregnant to him. And that, and that second um, abortion was, was terrible. Um, it was much more traumatic. I don't think any abortion is not traumatic. But the second one, I think I just had a much graver consciousness of of what was going on um, and I was much sadder about it I was sad the first time but the second time was a real sort of grief and my father came up for that he came up to Wellington just to be there and Phil was really supportive too so I was kind of better supported and maybe that's why I was able to be sadder I always remember a girl I liked in that year um telling her about it and just I think her I, it was as if I'd slapped her in the face so I probably ran into her belief system you know unwittingly yeah um it's taboo and 
you know, she sort of avoided me after that. So the, you know, when you're young and you're negotiating this stuff, it, it, you know, it's it's their icebergs. You just see the tip, and you don't know, you don't know exactly what's underneath. I think the conversation would be a lot more open these days, but it depends what your circle is. It's still a vexed conversation. Obviously a really complicated topic and one that you'll explore at length in your memoir, Time of the Manor Rowans. I'll put a link to that one up on the program's page on fbiradio.com if anyone did want to listen to that. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next part of the show, as well as your partner, Jeremy, who you've just mentioned. But first, a song. It's by Modern Lovers, fittingly. Tell me about this one. Oh, Astral Plane. Um, so Steve, my flatmate that I mentioned earlier, Steve Braunius, um, introduced me to The Modern Lovers, just that, I think it's The Modern Lovers by The Modern Lovers. Uh, it's an American kind of pre-punk or sort of pre-punk American early 70s album. And it's the song, you know, um, the, the narrator is going to meet the girl he's in love with on the astral plane because that's the only place he is ever going to meet her. It's sort of so full of longing. It's so cosmic. It's so kitsch. It's so corny. And sort of <laughs> he just has this self-dobbing honesty that um, was sort of like, is he for real? He is. That's so beautiful. Um, just totally tickled me. Um, I think I... My flatmate bought me the 33-inch and I played it for about 30 years until I melted it on the back seat of my car, alas, alas, um, <laughs> in, the, in the Sydney sun, which it wasn't made for, of course. But Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, um, just listen to the lyrics. They're, they're a beautiful thing. On the astral plane, the astral It was Modern Lovers on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Astral Plane. It was chosen by Miro Bilbra, who just said that she had the physical copy of that song sitting in the backseat of her car and it melted when she <laughs> was living in Sydney. So, yeah, let's jump to your move to Sydney. The first half of this, well, the, most of this show has been set in New Zealand, but you now call Australia home and it's been the setting for a lot of stuff in your life, Miro. You've done a lot of writing, directing and script consultation here. How did you end up in the cinematography space? I think when I was at um, at Victoria University in Wellington, um, there, was, there was no film school then. Um, and I, I did a bit of film theory, which of course just meant watching a lot of movies um, with Russell Campbell, my then teacher, and I was totally ardent about it. And I sort of ended up interviewing a few filmmakers. And one of them, in fact, was Vincent Ward, who uh, was, was, you know, quite a big feature filmmaker, a New Zealand filmmaker who was living in Sydney. And I ended up um, having an affair with Vincent, and that's kind of how I got to come to move to Sydney, um, because he said he was away shooting a movie in LA, and he said you can use my basement flat in the Cross. Um, so I came here, and I think, um, I think you know, shame to say that I probably had to go out with a few filmmakers before I actually realised, no, hang on, it's you want <laughs> to be doing, the, you want to be the filmmaker. So it's no point going out with them. Um, they just want wives anyway. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I kind of was just a bit slow to allow myself to have that sort of vision. And I, it wasn't like I didn't have a vision. I was busy doing other things, you know, I was a poet and... I'd been to uni and I, I had worked in the art world um, and I just thought that film was very, very intimidatingly technical and seemed to be all about the money, which I still agree with. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I found myself writing a film script. So that's how I... I think I went away on a retreat full of um, 
poets and filmmakers and and the filmmakers said oh your poems are just like scenes from movies and that sort of set me free to kind of imagine I could be a filmmaker I realized I was writing dialogue and poems I was writing characters I was writing settings I may as well just write a bloody film script Um, and that film script was financed by the Australian Film Commission Uh, so I just sort of hit the jackpot and then I was off I was away for a while making films and you've gone out in a very big way your films have been shortlisted in Cannes a few times and you've been screened at Sydney and Melbourne Film Festival if we had more time I'd want to talk more about your films Miro but unfortunately we only have an hour so let's talk about the book the reason that you're here today it's called In the Time of the Manoroans. It hit shelves in Australia just yesterday. What made you want to write the book? I was at a sort of funny time in my life in the sense that I'd, I'd made two feature films. Uh, the film industry was entering this very difficult historical moment when um, there was the global financial crisis. A lot of money disappeared for filmmaking. And then um, films were going to series more. And the kinds of films I wanted to make, there wasn't a very hospitable, there just wasn't the money around in Australia. And I'd gone off and done a doctorate of creative arts, kind of as a way to um, keep my love for the medium alive. And and it was, I got a scholarship, so I was able to write another screenplay. But when I came out of that, um, I felt I felt a certain impossibility around making that screenplay. I just didn't know how I was going to be able to finance it. It's kind of like I knew too much. I knew too much. I think I made my earlier films out of a certain willful optimism. Um, but now I had been sort of disillusioned a bit too much. So so then I just thought, well, I could I could I needed to write, and I. I knew I could write a book and I started writing, I started writing, um, I just described my father's crazy bedroom which was actually called the box room at the flood house and bang I was away. I think I wrote 10,000 words in the first week which for a prose poet is a hell of a lot of words so it was just this beautiful sense of oh you know I don't have any collaborators, I don't have any financiers, I don't have anyone telling me, you know, about three-act structure or, you know, it was just I was kind of on my own, which was where I wanted to be. Um, And I didn't have to please anyone except myself. And I think that's often the best place to be when you're writing because you can be more truthful and I could play, play around with language, which you can't do in a script. The script is all the language in the service of the images. So it's kind of like I went back to my roots, um, which was on the page and just me sitting in my bedroom or in my sunroom. You know, it's cheap. Um, and I and I did it for three years. Um, and it was sort of a bit curative after having been in the academic situation, which I didn't feel um, totally easy with. I, I never liked the language much uh, that you had to use. So I kind of felt like I re, it was a reclaiming of language and storytelling and, you know, I was in my early 50s and it was just suddenly I had the long look back and suddenly I felt that this world of the Manoroans and the flood house and my young girl sexuality uh, was a world that I wanted to, to go back and recapture. And I think, too, I'd been teaching, you know, film students for a good more than a decade and I just saw a lot of young women and young people negotiating their sexuality and it reminded me of doing that and I had stuff to say about that it was kind of before the Me Too movement had kicked off and I had stuff I needed to say um, you know about various predations and lack of boundaries and and your own claiming of agency and desire, and I wanted to write right into that. So there was yeah. a lot driving me. Yeah, it was good. It was a gift yeah. for a writer. Yeah. As a memoir, obviously it tales the story of your life, but then does explore these themes of 
sexuality, femininity. It, it looks at the Manoroans and that kind of lifestyle as well. Explores really big themes and, you know, if anyone did want to read it, I'll put it up on the program's page on fbiradio.com. It's called Time of the Manoroans by Miro Bilbra, my guest on the show today, and it explores all of the stories that maybe we haven't had time to get to. We have only had an hour, unfortunately. Um, Miro, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Is there anything else you wanted to add that maybe we haven't touched on? I will say about the book that I think it's also a collection of portraits that almost more than anything, I just, um, I'm a portraitist and so you can almost read it like, you know, 200 or 260 prose poem portraits. Um, You can just sort of dip in and read about a character. Um, It was a transient world with a lot of quite rich characters passing through the hippie world. Um, so, yeah, hard to film, but good to capture on the page. <laughs> Miro, what song would you like to finish on today? What song? I'd like to finish on a song called In Spite of Me by Morphine. And I first heard this on a C90 mixtape that my now partner Jeremy sent me from London. And I felt like there was a bit of a, a sort of ironic self-portrait of Jeremy in the song In Spite of Me. It's got this melancholy wit and this humility that's a bit a bit streaked with irony and a few daggers. Um, and I used this song when I was rewriting a character in the book called John of Saratoga, who's dead now. It's quite um, he died tragically. Um, and I was writing a film called Flood House in about two thousand and three, and I wanted John of Saratoga in the film. And I rewrote him as a fictional character called Herringbone John. And I used this song in spite of me to sort of conjure him because it had it had his mood. It just had his atmosphere (laughs) and his sweetness. And the singer sings it. He almost speaks it in this beautiful, husky, confiding, bittersweet voice. It's the guitar, the voice. It's I think it's one of the most beautiful love songs ever. A huge call right here on FBI Radio 94.5. It is Morphine. The song is called In Spite of Me. And it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Miro Bilbra, the author of the book In the Time of the Manoroans, which you can find on the program's page on fbiradio.com, as well as Miro's movies. Also on the program's page, you can listen back to this show if you like, or you can listen back on the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout out to producer Rebecca for reading the memoir and doing all the research search for this episode and stay tuned lunch is right around the corner fbi and i know you did it all in spite of me in spite of me